We are in the book uh, of the Bible called Galatians, and the series is entitled Free at Last. And so, as we get to focus on the freedom that is unique to all of the freedoms, the freedom that is in Christ, we're going to dive in uh, into chapter 3 because we've already worked our way through all of chapters 1 and 2 and uh, all the way to the end of 3. So, we're going to go today from verses 23 basically all the way to chapter 4, uh, verse 7. So, 3.23 to 4.7. However, I'm just going to read verses 1 to 7 of chapter 4, um, and then I'll pray, and we'll dive right in. Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. The Word of God says this. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that, here's the beautiful phrase, we might receive adoption. Adoption is sons, and because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray right now that you would meet with us. I pray that you would drain me of me and everyone in here. Drain us all of ourselves. In the sense that we might have things that are standing between us and you, Father, we don't want any barrier anymore. You are the greatest gift. You are our greatest treasure. Intimacy and connection with you is our greatest need. So, Father, it is your nearness that is our good. And I just pray that you would remove a spirit of indifference. Remove a spirit of bitterness or revenge. Remove a spirit of anger. Remove a spirit of loneliness or Such deep sadness that begins to cloud your beauty. But what we know is that no matter what state we are in, you break through those barriers to get to us. That's what we ask for today. Breakthrough, Father. Teach us, comfort us, care for us in these moments by showing us yourself. And how beautiful it is that we might be called children of God. Father, please move, I ask. In Jesus' name, amen. So, children have to learn to be children. Not sure if you thought about this, but children have to learn to be children. Now, there are certain aspects of being a child that they don't have to learn, right? Like... I didn't teach, have to teach my child to say mine. That just kind of happened, right? I didn't teach them to whine and complain. Maybe I did by my actions, but that'll be a different story for a different day. That's not unique to being a child. That's being human, right? What does it mean to learn to be a child, though? They had to learn to trust. Children had to learn what it was even like to eat. To even trust a child I mean, I trust a parent to take care of you. Children had to learn not to fight, but to receive. Children had to learn to obey because parents give boundaries for their good. And they had to learn what it looks like to live in those. Children are always learning. And then, when siblings come into the mix, now there's a massive learning curve, right? (laughs) What was once all mine is now shared. (laughs) The most hated word in all of childrendom. Share. 
We have to learn to be a child. But what's interesting is that learning doesn't make them a child. They're already children. No matter how good they are at obeying, no matter how good they are at eating, no matter how good they are at fighting or not fighting, they're always children. From the beginning, they're children. And how proficient they are at acting like a child, how proficient they are at obeying, doesn't make them any more or less a child. They're still a child. And so today, as we get to dive into this beautiful, precious word, this truth, That by simple faith alone, we are what's called justified, declared not guilty. And because that verdict has been rendered by faith alone, we are adopted as children into the family of God. By simple faith alone, we are children. And we live our lives fighting to learn what it means to trust God and to be a child. But you need to know. Some of you who have trusted Him all your life and some of you who have just trusted Him last week, every one of you, you're a child. You're secure. You are loved. You are the apple of His eye. You are treasured. This is what God says about you by faith alone. So when we begin to understand this beautiful message of adoption, we have to understand what the Bible begins to say about how we get to be a part of the family of God, how we get to be adopted as children. And it begins with where Paul is in this idea of justification by faith alone. So we've got three ideas we're going to dive into. One is this. The Bible tells us that justification is by faith alone, not by the law. Now, we dove into the deep end of the pool last week and tried to understand Galatians 3, and it was some you know, heavy treading. It was a lot to tackle. So I want to go back and to make sure we understand a little bit of the context. So in some sense, repeat. In other sense, we need it to understand where we're headed. Justification is by faith alone, not by the law. Number two, the Bible tells us justification is for all people who believe. All people who believe. And number three, justification sets us free into the family of God. It's called adoption. So, Let's dive in. Justification is by faith alone, not by the law. Now, you got to understand, Paul is writing this letter to address a specific problem. Whenever somebody is advocating for something, they're also guarding against something else. He is advocating for, you can only be saved. You can only be right with God. You can only be, the word is, justified, declared not guilty by faith alone. Not by you doing for God, but because He has already done for you. There's nothing you can offer to His beauty. So He is advocating for justification by faith alone. When He advocates for that, He's also guarding against something else. The perversion the perversion that was going on, that it was Jesus plus. It was my Deeds were somehow adding to what Jesus did, and that's why God accepts me. So let's understand the context. Jewish Christians were in a multi-ethnic church. It was the church in Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey. So these Jewish Christians in this multi-ethnic church, which means the church is filled with Jews and non-Jews, they were, these Jewish Christians, both in their actions because they were separating from those who were not like them at the lunch table, if you remember that in Galatians chapter 2. And in their words, they were saying, you must obey the Jewish law on top of faith in order to be justified. You must be circumcised. You must follow the Jewish traditions and the marriage laws in order to be right with God. So with their actions, separating at the lunch table, and with their words, you must add circumcision to faith They were distorting the gospel of God. They were distorting justification by faith alone. Paul says, anyone who adds to justification by faith alone, let them be accursed. It is a damning message to say that it is faith plus something else. Because then it's all about what you can do for God. And if you aren't good enough, then how do you know you're secure? 
The gospel of justification by faith alone is meant for your security. Anything else uproots it and diminishes the glory of God. So Paul says it this way. If you say that justification, being declared not guilty, is by something other than faith alone, then Jesus didn't need to die. Look at Galatians chapter 2 verse 21. Paul says this, I do not nullify the grace of God. That means anytime you try to smuggle something else in, that's why God's accepting me. I give faithfully. I attend faithfully. I pray faithfully. I'm really kind at work. Anytime you try to smuggle something in, in their situation it was, I do the Jewish law. Anytime you try to smuggle something in, my goodness, as the grounds for your justification, you are, what this passage says, nullifying the grace of God. You're saying it's about you, not grace. Grace means free gift, something you can't add to him, something he does for you. And he says, I don't nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, then Jesus died for no purpose. He didn't need to come. If you could save yourself, he didn't need to come. But he did come because you can't. You get it? This is the problem that Paul is presenting. And so last week, we dove into Galatians chapter 3, verse 15. Because you might ask the question, where did the Jews get this idea that it was the Jewish law that would somehow make them right with God? Well, one, we've already talked about. It just feels better when you can do something. And then you point to that doing something as the grounds for God liking you. That's just how we operate, right? Oh, I'm pretty faithful. I'm better than my neighbor. I, I do this or that. We like that. It's secure. You can see it and touch it. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is justification by faith alone. Trusting in a God you can't see who has been working in human history, the creator of the universe, the one who sent his son to die in the place of sinners. So why would the Jews think that they can do the law and then be accepted by God? Why would that happen? Well, it was, it was a misreading of their Bible. It was an interpretation problem, and Paul is setting it straight. He's saying you ain't reading your Bible right. Here's what they thought. There was a promise given to Abraham. The promise was this. You are justified by faith alone. That's not a new thing. That's always been. Let me just point it out to you. In Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 13, Genesis chapter 15, Genesis chapter 17, it was over and over the promise made to Abraham, what is known as the Abrahamic covenant. That promise made to Abraham could sound, it sounded like this. Genesis chapter 15, verses 5 and 6. God says to Abram, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. You got to keep in mind, Abram was really old, can't bear children, at least so we thought. Well, he definitely can't bear them, right? Like his wife would do that, but you know what I'm getting at. Then he said to him, as many as the stars are in the sky, so shall your offspring be. What was Abram going to do with it? It says, and he believed God, faith, and it was counted to him as righteousness, justification. He was made right before God, not because he counted the stars or he did for God, but because he said, I take you at your word. I trust you. And you alone can deliver on these promises to save me. Justification by faith alone has always been the promise. And now here's how they were mixing it up. Because they knew that the Old Testament law, stay with me, followed that promise. So as I said last week, they were treating it like a computer update. It was like the 2.0 of the 1.0. And when 2.0 comes in, 1.0 goes away. Paul says, that's not how you should read your Bible. The promise has always been. It's always justification by faith alone. This is what he says. Look at verse 17 with me. Verse 17, he says, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, the people of Israel were in captivity and enslavement under the people of Egypt for 430 years. They were in Egypt for 430 years. So says Exodus 12. So this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant 
previously ratified by God. What's that covenant previously ratified by God? It's the promise made to Abraham. So as to make the promise void. Because if the inheritance comes by the law, then it no longer comes by promise. You can't have your cake and eat it too. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So then they're asking the question, well then why did this law come? Why did God start giving law? Well, it says right here in verse 19, it was added because of transgression. They were sinning and they weren't calling it sin. So God gives a law that says that action you are doing that you were saying was okay, it's actually sin. It's breaking the righteousness of me. It's breaking my right standards and you shouldn't do it anymore. So the law was added to call sin, sin, even though they didn't know it was sin. It was added to give names to sin. Adultery, stealing, lying, covetousness. The law came in to bring names to sin. And so this is why the law came. They were hurting themselves. They were defaming the name of God. So the law was added. Now, let's keep reading. It says in verse 19, the law was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come. Now, the promise was made to Abraham and to not all of his children. It was made to his one offspring who we know as the Messiah, the coming Savior, Jesus Christ. That's who fulfills all of the promises. And so now we have a difference. And this is crucial for understanding where we're headed. There's a difference between the individual laws given to the people of Israel, 613 of them, and the Old Testament itself. Those are different. I like to talk about them as little L law and big L law. Little L law is the individual commands given to the people of Israel. Big L law is the book, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Stay with me. I know this is like good night. He is just wearing me out. Okay, here we go. We're going someplace. Big L law, the book, tells you that all those little laws will never change the human heart. The book tells you that the law itself is temporary and deficient to change humanity. And that's why it says in verse 22 of Galatians chapter 3, he doesn't say, but the individual laws imprison everything under sin. He says, Scripture, that means his Bible, tells us that everything is imprisoned under sin. What does that mean? It means that the Old Testament told us that the law just made us more and more sinful. It just showed us how sinful we are and how we need a Savior. So it says, the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that, the, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Salvation has always been by faith in the Messiah and that leads to justification. Always, always, always. Jesus has always been a part of this. So, now then what this means is the whole of the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus as the remedy for our problems. Romans chapter 10 verse 4 says this, The goal of the law is Jesus for righteousness, not us for righteousness. We couldn't do it. We needed Jesus to make us right before God, and we get that by believing for all who believe. So, now then we have to ask, why does this matter? Here's what happens. We are told, look at verse 23 of Galatians chapter 3. Now before faith came, faith is code word for who? Okay, let's try that again. That was, okay, verse 23. Now before faith came, who is faith code word for? Jesus, that's right. Yeah, I try to throw a softball every now and then, you know, just like lob it up. Here we go. Now before Jesus came, we were held captive under the law. We were sinful, imprisoned until 
the coming faith would be revealed. Who's the coming faith? Verse 24. So then the law was our guardian. It was our tutor until Christ came, till Jesus comes. So it was our tutor, our intermediate teacher, until the real teacher showed up on the scene. Well, what happens now that the real teacher shows up on the scene? Verse 25, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. We're no longer under the laws given to Israel. Those are not our laws anymore. How many of you, seeking to obey your Bible, go out and build an ark? How many? Good, I'm glad you don't. You shouldn't. Why would I ask that question? Well, it says in the Bible, God said to Noah, go build an ark. Why don't you obey that command? Because that command was given to who? Noah. Now you've got all these laws in the book of Exodus given to the people of Israel, and those laws were meant to govern them. So when it says, don't wear mixed fabrics, and that was a law given to the people of Israel, Am I needing to be in distress because I have a polyester blend? That I wear shirts that got some cotton and some rayon and some polyester all worked in there. Because I'm losing interest in the 100% cotton thing. They get really heavy and they shrink, you know, all that mess. Is that a problem? The Bible says, shouldn't have your mixed fabrics. It was a law given to the people of Israel. So now we've got to ask ourselves... We've got to ask, our, ask ourselves, one, then how are we to read the Old Testament at all if those laws aren't our laws? And two, we then have to ask, if those laws are not our laws, do we have any laws? Is there anything we're to obey? We probably should answer both those. Let's do that, okay? Great. How do we read the Old Testament? How do we read that? This way. One, as a book. Paul is laboring here to say there is a book. Scripture. The Old Testament is a book and it tells us a story. A story of how those individual laws fall short in changing humanity and how all humanity can only have salvation through faith alone in God alone through the Messiah alone. That's the only way you can be made right. That's the whole narrative. Of the Old Testament. So you've got to read it as a book. Number two. That book tells us. Of the inability of humanity. To be righteous. That book. The Old Testament. It tells us of our inability. To be right before God. By our own works. And I would push a little farther. That it also tells you the consequences. Of trying to live your life your own way. And not according to God's ways. All throughout the Old Testament, you see that God is holy and righteous and just. And you see these people living against God's ways. And you see devastating punishment and consequences for years and years and years because the people have rejected God. And they haven't lived according to His ways. Devastating consequences for our sinfulness. And it's meant to paint a picture. Death is what we deserve. We are all sinful, unable to make ourselves right before God. So, how else do we read the Old Testament? We read it to see a beautiful Savior. People sometimes mistakenly think that the only place you see Jesus is in the New Testament. No way, no how. He's all throughout the Old Testament. How do I know that a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench out? How do I know that there's one coming filled with the Holy Spirit who will suffer in my place? How do I know that he became righteousness for me when I couldn't be righteousness for myself? Answer, I've read my Bible, it's the Old Testament. Yes, I know those things from the New Testament, but I see a beautiful Savior in the Old Testament. And friends, it gets massively practical here. When I get this phone call on Thursday that my dear sweet friends, members of this church, J.D. and Rachel Loftus have lost their baby at 23 weeks. And right after they get it out, they just weep. I just sit there in silence with them. No words necessary. 
started crying. Said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. They found some strength to talk a little bit more. To share what some of their fears were. To share some of their pains. After they talked a little bit more, I prayed. I prayed over them. And after we were done, I sent them a text. I sent them a text from Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not discouraged, because I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. How in the world do I know that promise is for them? Because the Bible tells me so. The Bible tells me that all the promises of the Old Testament are mine because Jesus died in my place and he rose from the dead and the message that has been from the beginning by faith alone you are justified and therefore Gentiles, non-Jews like myself are full heirs of all the promises made to Israel. It does not mean that some of those promises don't have ethnic affinity but it means that every single one of those promises are mine in Christ Jesus. Every one of them. And so with great confidence, I send them, fear not for I am with you. Be not discouraged because I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand because by simple faith alone, they trust that God. Then I wrote them right after that. I said, at every step, with every moment and every feeling, your God is right there. He is not distant. He is not passive. He is working He is strengthening and praying and upholding and comforting and loving and holding you all as his loved children. I love you. Hold on to this. We know our God and we know his love by reading the Old Testament. We have a beautiful Savior. And those promises are ours because of him. The final reason we read our Old Testament is because It helps us grow in wisdom. The Bible helps us grow in wisdom. I don't want you to hear I'm advocating for old over new. I'm just advocating for some of those who think the Old Testament isn't relevant or isn't helpful that we read our whole Bible. And the Old Testament does make us wise. That's why we just finished a series in the book of Proverbs. It's the fear of the Lord that's the beginning of wisdom. The more you see God, the more you see His ways, the more you fear Him and you don't fear other things. What's beautiful about the fear of the Lord is that it's an awe and a reverence that draws you towards Him where the fear of everything else, it repels you and you run away from it. You only know that kind of intimate, attractive type fear, the fear of the Lord, by reading your Bible and knowing the graciousness, holiness, and justice of God. And so it also helps us grow in wisdom when we seek to make decisions. I don't know if you remember this, but a few sermons ago, I mentioned the idea of getting a tattoo. The Old Testament clearly states You should not get a tattoo, people of Israel. And so, can you get a tattoo? The argument here from Paul is that you are no longer under those Old Testament laws. And so, many of you are like, sweet, getting a sleeve. That's how it rolls, I'm ready. Well, wait, wait just a second. I would argue it's a little more complicated than that. And here's why. D.A. Carson says it this way. It is not that there are now no laws to obey, nor is the command watered down by love, meaning, oh, God loves me. He's forgiven me, so I don't have to obey any commands. Neither one of those are true. It's not that there aren't any commands, and it's not that the commands he gives you, he doesn't really fully mean because he loves you so much. No, you've got to obey. Jesus is way more challenging and way more demanding as well as more rewarding than the legal system, the law, could ever be. So, I ask you, 
How does someone filled with the Spirit of God, follower of Jesus, how are they supposed to understand, should I get a tattoo or not? It's a little more complicated than that. Because the Bible says this, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Romans 14, 23. There's two commands in the Bible. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. It's always been consistent. So you have to, no matter what you do, if you're going to get a tattoo, you've got to have a sense of, yes, I love God with all my heart and I'm loving my neighbor as myself. It's okay. I'm free to do this. You can't be breaking those two commandments. So you're just like, well, but does that mean I can get one or not? Well, the Bible says whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. But you're not answering my question. Can I get a tattoo? Well, it also says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the what? Glory of God. But you're not answering my question. Can I get a tattoo? You walk by the Spirit. We crave law. We love it. And yet we hate it at the same time. It's like, don't tell me what to do. But then, if I really want to know what is right and I want to be accepted, tell me what to do. God says that's not how it works. We struggle that what it takes is sitting before the feet of Jesus, pressing into Him. And it's called in Galatians chapter 5 and 6, walking by the Spirit. And you would love for me to say, you can get one, you can't. That just ain't how it rolls. And for some of you, it is perfectly wonderful for you to get a tattoo. And for others of you, it's not. And I can't tell you why. And I can't tell you what. And I can't tell you where. But I can tell you this. Everything to the glory of God. For His fame. And you live in freedom. Don't live bound. Do it according to your conscience. So dear friends. That's why we needed to ask the question. So are there any laws that we obey at all? Galatians chapter 6 verse 1 says, yes, the law of Christ. There are tons of things that Jesus gives us in the New Testament that are laws that we must obey. But friends, it is walking by the Spirit. We must obey commands and walk by the Spirit. So justification is by faith alone, not by the law. But now, real quickly, justification is for all people who believe. Look at what he says here in verse 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. We are no longer under the law, for in Christ Jesus you are all, all sons of God through faith. Why does he say that? Because he's looking at a multi-ethnic congregation that is tempted to divide themselves based upon ethnicity. And you've got one group over here that says, I'm in. And you've got one group over here that's looking to say, am I really in? And they say, no, the only way you get in is by being like me. No! You are all sons of God, not based upon your ethnicity, but because of faith. And that's why he says, verse 27, For as many as you were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ, and that's enough. Now this is spiritual baptism. Those of you who have said, I'm a sinner, and I'm dead to sin, and Jesus alone can raise me up and make me new. I owe everything to Jesus. Anyone who expresses faith like that is a child of God. That's why he says in verse 28, Neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then Jew or Gentile, you are Abraham's offspring. And you inherit everything that was promised to Abraham. Jew or Gentile. Now, let's hit the rewind button just a second and look at verse 28. This is where we've got to understand and interpret things rightly. He is not saying that ethnicity is unimportant. When he says neither Jew nor Greek. Ethnicity is beautiful. Different cultures. Different expressions. Different songs. Different ethnic 
dancing, different food, different all kinds of ways to relate. Some are fast-paced, some are slow-paced, some deep in relationships, some are surface. There's just all kinds of beautiful things about culture that are meant to be celebrated and to be learned from. I believe that's why scattered around the feet of Jesus on that last day, it'll be people from every nation, tribe, and tongue shouting out one song. God is going to get glory in that day when multiple cultures worship with one voice. He is not saying, though, that these ethnic groups and all of their beauty are not important. On the contrary, he is saying that ethnicity doesn't give you a greater chance to be saved. Go to the next one. There is neither slave nor free. Some people erroneously, horribly, tragically, and in history of the church, have used verses like this to justify the slavery that happened in North America from the 17th all the way to the 19th century. Justifying slavery because it's in the Bible. That could not be further from the truth. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10 calls enslaving others, human trafficking, Owning people as property. Looking down upon people as inferior because of their ethnicity or in any way, shape, or form. Enslavers are abhorrent to God. Revelation chapter 18 verses 11 through 13 say the same thing. There is zero sanctioning of what happened in America. What we call slavery. But here, this slavery has more to do with the Roman institution of slavery where it was almost, it was a little different, but it was almost like owner of company and employee. And these employees, they had rights of ownership. They had immense wealth. There was all kinds of benefits and they were able to get freedom after a certain time of working for the master. There was, it was just, it's just different. But here he's making a statement. The owner or the employee. Your wealth or social status don't give you any greater chance to be saved at all. And then he goes on, neither male nor female. Our culture is pushing that gender is optional. I am not at this time going to spend time dealing with all the issues of what the Bible says about gender and sexuality. We will do that, but not right now. That's going past what Paul is speaking to. But I will mention this. Some are seeking to say gender is optional and baptizing it in Christian language by using this very verse. See, look at it. It says neither male nor female. So gender is optional. That is totally ripping these words completely out of their context. That's not what this is saying. The classic example of taking a phrase and ripping it out of context is the phrase, go and do likewise. In the Bible, in the New Testament, it says, go and do likewise. Now, if you want to take that phrase and rip it out and then put it somewhere else in the Bible, you might be able to say, Jesus walked on water, dot, 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 go and do likewise. You might say, Zacchaeus climbed a sycamore tree, dot, 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 go and do likewise. You might even say, and, Jesus, and Judas hung himself, dot, 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 go and do likewise. I don't recommend any of those. The passage, go and do likewise, is from the story of the Good Samaritan. When he is asked, which one showed mercy? And it was the Samaritan. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Meaning, go show mercy. When you read your Bible, you need to know this. You are not after what you want it to say or what you think it says. You are after the author's intent. And it is upon you as the recipient of this word to fight with all of your might to get at what he is wanting to say. These are God's words. We don't get to craft them to make them what we want them to be. And here it says, neither male or female, meaning men have no greater access to justification by faith alone than women do. Justification by faith alone is for all. And so, dear friends, as we look at this passage, Paul is advocating that you are justified by faith alone 
and your ethnicity, your social status, your wealth, your gender, nothing gives you a greater chance than anything else. All, all by faith alone can be children of the living God. And so, that is the question. What does it mean to be a child of God? And Paul helps us right here. He says this. Chapter 4. Justification sets you free into the family of God. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. So let's shift our brains just a little bit. He's saying that you are justified by faith alone. And when you are made right before God, you are transferred into the family of God by adoption. And you become an heir of everything that's his. So he uses a story. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything. Which means, the child one day will inherit everything that is his parents, or her parents. But, in this situation, they're just like the slave in that they don't have access to it. Because, even though the child is an owner of everything... He still, verse 2, is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Verse 3, in the same way, we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to elementary principles. That means the Jews were enslaved to the Mosaic law. The Gentiles were enslaved to all of their pagan rituals and how they would try to get to God. We were all enslaved until, verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth Jesus, His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive, receive, receive. This is Christianity 101. We are recipients. Remember the hospital analogy from last week. You don't go to the hospital to tell the doctors what to do. You go to the hospital because you cannot figure out how to heal yourself. Receive. You just receive the treatment. Here, You receive adoption as sons. You cannot make yourself a child. And now, verse 6, this beginning phrase is where I want to finish and lead us to worship and end. And because you are sons, because you are sons, in that culture, the son was the only one who had the right to the inheritance. So here he is saying male or female are all quote-unquote, sons, and that you all are children of God, you get all of the inheritance. Nobody is left out of this. You are adopted, and you get all the rights and privileges of being the son in that culture, which was to get everything. And because you are sons, that inheritance begins right now. The first deposit of that inheritance is that the Spirit of God is placed into your hearts and that Spirit cries out within you this familial connection, God, you are my Father. Abba, Father, I love you. That's the first deposit of the inheritance. And so I just want us to ask, what does it mean to be a child? What does it mean to be a child? Adoption as sons, adoption as children, it tells us that we are loved. Adoption tells us that we are loved. You are loved by God. Now, when you begin to dip your toes into the adoption world, we've had two children biologically and we've adopted two children. And when you dip your toes into the adoption world, you begin to understand that not all adoptions are done out of pure motives and that there's all kinds of craziness out there. People are doing it for trafficking. People are selling their children in order to make money. There's a lot of bad things. But ultimately, the trajectory of the reason for adoption is because a parent wants a child who is not in their home to be called child, family, mine, I love you. And I can tell you from going through the process of adoption that when you have to adopt a child, it takes All kinds of time, first of all. All kinds of paperwork. We called it a paper birth. It was like this big of paperwork that we had to compile. Had to raise money. Apply for grants. Wait and wait and wait. And then we would travel and we would go. We would learn a new culture. And we would 
face unknown sicknesses. And why would we do that? It was so that that child would know beyond a shadow of a doubt we sacrificed everything because we love you. You are ours. What did God do? We have never sacrificed even an ounce compared to that. God crushed His only Son to make you know beyond a shadow of a doubt no matter what suffering you face, He loves you. He sent His Son to die in your place. He made you a child through the blood of Jesus Christ. And He said through that death and subsequent resurrection, you are a child And you are loved. That's why we can sing. No longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. I am a child of God. We need to say it over and over. When we're tempted to question Him. I am a child of God. Why don't you say that with me? Amen. And that is by faith alone. How did you get there? Charles Spurgeon tells us. He tells us in this quote I was reading in in his book Morning and Evening. He's addressing a a person who has just come to faith and they feel very infant in their faith as they look at someone who's much more mature, much wiser. And here's what he says. Remember that in some things, you who feel immature and weak, you are equal to the greatest and most full-grown Christian. Why? You are as much bought with blood as they are. You are as much an adopted child of God as any other believer. An infant is as truly a child of its parents as is a full-grown man. You are as completely justified for your justification is not a thing of degrees. Your little faith has made you clean every part of you or every wit. You have as much right to the precious things of the covenant as the most advanced believers For your right to covenant mercies lie not in your growth or ability to do, but in the covenant itself. And your faith in Jesus is not the measure, but the token of your inheritance in Him. Dear friends, you are a child, not because of the amount of your faith, but by simple faith alone. And by that, you are fully a child indeed. You are loved. And if a child, you are heir of all things. You will inherit everything that is the Lord's. And He has given you His Holy Spirit as a secured promise that one day you will be with Him face to face and you will have Him, which is what satisfies you. My little girl, we were in the kitchen yesterday. She wanted a cinnamon roll for breakfast. And as she looked at that cinnamon roll, she said, she said, man, I want to eat this right now but it's so much better if it's heated. So, she had a massive dilemma. Would she bite it now, or would she put it in the microwave and heat it up? She waited. She heated it up, and then she downed it. (laughs) So if I give you $5, and I tell you, you can have this $5, but if you wait a week, you can cash it in for $5 million. What would you do? You might wait, right? You should wait. Why? Because the thing to come is better than what you have right now. You have fully before you the Holy Spirit inside of you, but you live in a broken world. And sometimes we try to make the things of this earth be what only God can be. So what we need to do is we need to be faithful to make Christ our aim more than possessions. Make Christ our aim more than people. Make Christ our aim more than food. And in so doing, we're doing so because we are the heir of all things as children. And when you know you are an heir of all things, it humbles you to the dirt. Because answer me this. How many of you made yourself a child? If you answer, I did, then we can talk after the service. That's not how it rolled. And how many of you made yourself a spiritual child? Not one. 
by faith alone. God does that invading work into the heart and he makes you his. And so the doctrine of adoption that you are a child is to tell you you are loved and you have everything that is his. It's to make you humble. To make you humble. To make you humble to say, I owe everything to him. You cannot pay back that nurturing parent. You just can't do it. How are you going to pay back for teaching you how to eat or taking care of this or that? I mean, we all have different expressions of who took care of us. It could have been a parent. It could have been an aunt. It could have been an uncle. It could have been a friend. But how do you pay back the one who nurtured you and took care of you and had put clothes on you? And how do you pay? You don't. The right response is thank you. And then, not for security, but from the security of love, God says, that's when you go and you love others with the gift that you've been given. Adoption says so much to you right now. But I pray that you know, justified by faith alone, not by adding anything to it, he looks at you and he says, you are my treasured possession. You are the apple of my eye. These are direct quotes from the Old Testament. You are precious. You are honored. And I love you. You're adopted. You're my children. Let's pray. Father, I pray that today anyone who is not trusting in Jesus, that, Father, they would see this beautiful treasure to go after, namely you, Jesus Christ, and they would surrender their lives and give their life wholly to Jesus. I pray that there, if there's anyone in here who is not a child or who thinks that because they are better than their neighbor or they've been good for part of their life or they've given a certain amount of money, that somehow they're secure, I pray that you would uproot that, that you would rip that away and you would create desperation that says, Jesus, you alone are my only hope. I trust in you. I love you. Save me from my sins. Father, come. Because I want people to know what it's like to be loved as a father loves a child. And Father, these promises are anyone's who trusts in you by faith alone. And Father, I pray for this church. I pray that this church, this precious, precious church, who is extending the love of Jesus in so many ways, as so many people in this church are hurting, I just pray, oh God, that they not only have the power to give away love, but they do that because they are so secure in your love for them. I pray, oh God, that this Lord's Supper time, as we go to the table, is just a way to remember and rehearse that you love us. You gave your only son. He died in our place. He rose from the dead, and that is our hope. And so, Father, I just pray that people leave here knowing the love of God for them.